Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me in the studio this week from GB News, it's Emily Carver. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the show. And joining us down the line from Luton, the author of Beyond Grievance, it's Rakib Essan. Hello. Coming up on today's show, Sadiq Khan's war on drivers, the rise of the woke police, and the curious case of Kayla Lemieux, the transgender teacher with Z-cup breasts. <laughs> now, if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do wherever you get your podcast. And if you're watching this on YouTube, not only should you subscribe to the Spike channel, make sure you click the bell as well so that you never miss an episode. So Sadiq Khan's ULEZ expansion officially came into force this week. Everyone in outer London, uh, if they have a non-compliant car, will be charged £12.50 a day uh, for driving into the zone. Um, there's been a lot of protest against ULEZ. There's been numerous cameras destroyed. And of course, you know, there was even the Uxbridge by-election um, resisting this uh, the introduction of this charge. I mean, it just doesn't seem like Sadiq is really listening to people's concerns about this. You know, it's very it's worrying to most people this this charge. He he says he is listening to concerns, but then shows absolutely no evidence um, that he is at all. It's quite remarkable though that he's managed to, you know, force this through in the way that he has, despite the amount of pushback, including from his own party. Yeah, I mean, Angela Rayner, for example, talking about how the rollout has been terrible in one way or another. Um, Keir Starmer also forced to comment on it. He's made it very difficult indeed for his own party who see this as a clash between, some of them see it between a clash between working class people who need to get about to be able to do their job, mm. who don't have the money to scrap their car and buy a new one that is ULES compliant. And then the environmental issues that, of course, they want to be seen to stand behind. Yeah. So it's very difficult for the Labour Party, I think. Mm. But Sadiq Khan is just a man on his own and he is willing and committed. He's a man of conviction, perhaps, uh, but just wrong in my the view. The wrong conviction. The wrong conviction. <laughs> he is just adamant that he is right on something and he will push it through and he needs the money. I mean, that's right, isn't it, Rakeem? I mean, Sadiq Khan has basically just been saying, you're either in favour of ULEZ or you're on the side of um, diseased lungs dead children, and probably your far right and a conspiracy theorist to boot. Why does he not see that how badly this is going to affect many working class Londoners? Well, I think it's a classic case of eco-dogma, Fraser, mm. truth be told. Uh, as you mentioned, the Uxbridge and South Royce by-election, uh, there's a very strong local effect there. That was a by-election that Labour should have won comfortably. Um, the Tories managed to uh, managed to cling on to it, and I think that actually showed that Sadiq Khan, in in many ways, is an electoral liability yeah. for for mm. the National Party, if truth be told. And I think that all too often he dismisses perfectly legitimate concerns over um, a variety of his policies, linking them to far right political activism. I think it's deeply divisive and extremely. Immature. I think that with many of these eco initiatives, Fraser, I think the, the main problem for me, it seems like it hits the relatively deprived groups in society particularly hard. Mm. And uh, there's research that I've also seen which suggests that the ULES scheme will also affect people living with disabilities and yeah. um, have a disproportionate impact on them. So I, I think there is an argument to be had in terms of how do we foster a more env environmentally friendly society. But the reality is, if you want people to reject car ownership, 
uh, you have to provide them with attractive alternatives. And the reality is that in, in many parts of outer London, these aren't deeply urbanised areas with a variety of uh, public transportation options. Mm. Uh, some of the areas in Uxbridge and South Ryslip, but I'd describe them as semi-rural with limited um, public transportation services. So I, I think that if you, if you want people to um, use their cars uh, less often, uh, first you have to incentivize the purchasing of cleaner vehicles, but you have to also provide them with those alternatives in terms of public transportation. So I feel that instead what we see with schemes such as ULES is, is looking to change people's behaviours through financial coercion. And I don't think that's mm. right. Yeah, definitely. And and one thing that's been uh, become very clear over the past weeks or so, we, we spoke a little bit about this last week, um, how the sort of scientific case for ULES was maybe uh, cooked up, um, not quite kosher. There's just so many of these sort of really, this misinformation really that the mayor is spreading. He's making all these kind of crazy claims that only uh, one in 10 cars is going to mm. be affected which, you know, there's no evidence for this. It makes doesn't make any sense. How can the scheme um, both be transformative to London's air quality and not affect many cars? That doesn't seem to yeah, make any sense. Yeah, I was listening to an expert who'd looked into this and the, the idea that only one in 10 cars are non-compliant seems to be a massive underestimation. Mm. It could be closer to about 75% being compliant yeah. and 25%. 25% is a lot for people in those outer boroughs. And of course, people come in from outside, visiting relatives, doing jobs, of course, social care, looking after family, and so on. The list goes on. Um, but I think it's not extreme to say that Sadiq Khan is acting a bit like a dictator in some ways, because firstly, it was not in his manifesto to expand mm. ULES this far. Yes, there were vague assertions about how he wanted to improve air quality, but that wasn't £12.50 a day for any non-compliant yeah. um, car. Then he... Um, he demonises the opposition, as Rakib um, mentioned there, calling them far-right, COVID deniers, whatever that is, vaccine deniers, what else <laughs> whatever was that there? Has to do with <laughs> all all other car, things, yeah. you know. And he kind of says, oh, they're, you know, holding hands with these people or they've latched on to the cause. So he doesn't mm. specifically call every anti-ULES person far-right, but do you want to be in that gang is mm. what he's suggesting. So, you know, you're not a nice person yeah. if you're on that side. And then also he cooks the books. These Public consultations mean nothing. Mm. The majority of people in London voted against this, at least in the outer boroughs, um, but it was pushed through anyway. So one asks, what is the point of a public consultation if he doesn't listen to the result? And that happens in councils up and down the country. It's yeah. not just a yeah. London Assembly thing. And I ask, I pose the question, why do we need a London mayor? Because I'm coming more and more sceptical of devolution just as a concept mm. in this country, or at least how it's practiced. I think it's actually making us more divided than ever rather than unified with differences. But that's separate conversation, perhaps. Well, I, I did want to touch on this, this question of um, sort of division, certainly between London and the rest of the country, because, Rakib, you know, I think not only is this, obviously, this measure is going to affect um, people who live beyond outer London, people who live in the sort of home counties who drive into London, who have relatives in London, of course, but there is something about Sadiq Khan's kind of style of leadership um, that he likes to portray London as this kind of holier than now, um, woke haven. I mean, obviously it isn't like that in reality, but that, that's how the mayor wants us to see it. Almost 
um, you know, as apart from the rest of the country, as superior to the rest of the country. Well, absolutely. Uh, but the reality is London, for example, is the most socially conservative region in the whole country, mm. if not one of the most conserv- socially conservative cities in the whole of Western Europe. Uh, so, so this idea that London is some sort of liberal cosmopolitan haven is simply not the case. Um, it, it was a bit like we've seen these you know, horrific homophobic attacks in uh, in London um, in recent times, but the, the, this is not new to London either. Uh, and Sadiq Khan blames it on the so-called culture wars. Mm. Uh, the, re- the reality is you'll find some of the most homophobic attitudes within um, certain religious minorities living in London. So, uh, And it was a bit like when, uh, when the mayor expressed his opposition to the, the Supreme Court's ruling on Roe v. Wade in the yeah. United States, saying that on behalf of all Londoners, I express my opposition <laughs> to the Supreme Court. Well, I'm sorry, he needs to go into some of those eastern boroughs. And if you talk to some of the traditional Bangladeshi origin families there, they'll tell you a thing or two about what they think about abortion for example. So I, I think that what the mayor pretends to do, uh, but I suspect that he, he does it deliberately. I think he knows for a while there's some very socially conservative communities in London, but he portrays it as this uh, sort of radical, cultural, liberal haven. And, and, and it's simply not rooted in, in reality. And I think with um, you, Liz, where he's tried to bat this off as you know being associated with far-right um political activity. It, it was many young families with ethnic minority backgrounds um, in Uxbridge and South Ryslip, in that particular part of West London, who are not keen on the ULA's expansion into outer London at all. Mm. So I think all too often an incredibly divisive leader, and I do think that is a liability for the Labour Party more widely. I do want to stick on this um, kind of theme of Sadiq Khan, the kind of culture warrior mm. mayor, because, you know, it's not just um, in recent times. He always uses the London fireworks to make a point, you know, he to praise BLM <laughs> after after Brexit, you know, he displayed the EU flag, yeah. things like that. I mean, Sadiq Khan, there is nothing he would love more than if London became its own little country. Yeah, yeah. Um, if it was its own little nation state where he had um, complete control, he's always trying to get more powers. His, his big one is so that he can implement rent controls, which... Um, if you agree with them or not, that would be an absolute huge uh, power for him to gain. And this is this is my issue with the London mayor in general that they always want more power, mm. and it's quite a new position anyway in the in the current form. Um, but yes, his his wokeness. Uh, I think it's totally superficial. I mean, this commission into diversity in the public realm. What was that? Five hundred thousand pounds of of London taxpayers' money to go to his. Uh, his his commission looking into which statues he liked and which he didn't and which ones were diverse enough and which ones weren't and should we add this one because it appeals to this particular ethnic group or this particular mm. religious group and I personally don't find that very unifying to want to strip mm. down historical artefacts potentially and replace them with something else that's more diverse, whatever that means. So he's a very confusing character, Sadiq Khan, and I wonder if he might lose quite a lot of the ethnic minority vote because he is pushing such woke liberal values or whether he thinks he can bank on certain groups i haven't i don't know well it seems to it, ironically it's the sort of politics of the um kind of white intelligence yeah. you know, and in mm. you know a tiny part of london and rakeem just finally i wanted to, to touch on uh, another sadiq khan controversy of recent weeks where 
a kind of style book um, of the sort of the kind of images that the how the mayor would like to be portrayed essentially. And and very infamously, there was a picture of a white, I guess, middle middle class family, sort of traditional looking family, sort right? Of, yeah, traditional looking family. Uh, and the caption says, "Does not represent real London." What did you make of that? <laughs> it was racist, wasn't it? But let's be absolutely clear here. And um, it, it didn't say, "Oh, th- these these people do not represent real Londoners because they were white." But I think it, it was primarily because of the racial background of the people in the photo and the fact that it was a traditional family. And there was and, another uh, photo as well that said it did represent real London, which absolutely. Was, so it's part of a collection of photos which were considered to be, how do you say, unfavorable branding versus favorable yeah. branding essentially. And I thought it was incredibly divisive. Uh, Of course, London in recent times has undertaken notable demographic change. Uh, But the reality is it's still a white majority city. Um, Over one in three people living in London do have a white British background. And if you go into boroughs, as you know, phrases like Bromley, Mm. um, Bexley and Havering, your your sort of conventional white British family unit is not uncommon yeah. in those boroughs. So it's, so I think this idea that it doesn't represent real Londoners, I think, is incredibly divisive. The irony that this guide was it promised to appeal to people of a variety of racial backgrounds, religious affiliations family structures and all the rest of it. And then to include material like that, I think it's very troubling that that line of thinking actually exists at the heart of City Hall, mm. truth be told. I actually listened to Rakib's interview, I think it was on BBC Radio 4. Um, and Rakib was discussing this exact issue and it was so interesting to see how the BBC presenter got so uncomfortable when Rakib said it was, <laughs> you know, could possibly be racist. Because imagine if that picture had been um, a girl in a hijab with mm. a parent in a in a burqa or something and someone had written, doesn't represent yeah. um, London. I mean, obviously everyone at the BBC would say that is the biggest and, example and now, of racism. And now, and but it's OK if it's a white family. It would be, it would be hor- horrifying. It would be horrifying, yeah. It would. It's just ridiculous. Obviously, it was because they're a white nuclear family, and that is not exciting enough for Sadiq Khan. <laughs> let's let's move on to talk about the Metropolitan Police. So, the Met Police Commissioner, uh, Sir Mark Rowley, has said that the police essentially need to tone down um, their politics. Uh, it's been interpreted. His remarks. He said that there shouldn't be any causes that the police are associated with. This has been widely interpreted as a kind of um, pushback against wokeism that's been on the rise in the police. I mean, Emily, what do you what do you make of his remarks? Does, does he have a point? Do the police need to cut out the woke politics? Yeah, I think he has a point, but I actually think it's 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 a problem with the law because we have non-crime hate incidents, because mm. we have hate speech, because we have protected characteristics. It's very hard for police to uh, decide what is criminal and what isn't and yeah. what they should investigate and what they should not. But I do think that some police um, commissioners or um, do go far too far. They actively encourage people to uh, encourage their police office to investigate non-crime hate incidents and these kind of crimes that aren't really crimes, but may, and they all, it's all subjective. Um, Essentially you're talking about all, people being investigated for 
tweets, tweets and Facebook that sort of posts, thing. Exactly. Things like that. And so I kind of feel sorry for the police because they're just sort of trying yeah. to do their job. But then I think the sort of parading around at Pride and, yeah. um, you know, getting involved with Extinction Rebellion and this sort of thing, that is absolutely not needed. I do not want to know whether my police officer is proud of pride or whether mm. he's an extinction rebellion sympathizer that is i do not want to know that i want them to be completely apolitical is that possible i don't know but it is quite refreshing to hear that yeah Ricky, i mean there's there's almost two things going on there there's the sort of uh i guess the superficial um or the i don't know symbolic kind of uh gestures as as emily said you know messing around at extinction rebellion rallies um i think they were they were skateboarding and dancing on a bridge that Extinction Rebellion were blockading instead of moving them a couple of years ago. Or famously during Black Lives Matter demonstrations, you saw police officers taking the knee. And then there's this sort of more serious kind of police overreach where you have officers um, really, you know, intervening in essentially political conversations on Twitter or arguments over on Facebook. What, what do you think of this issue? Well, I, I think that not many police forces they just need to stick to the bread and butter of policing really uh, I, th- I think that all too often especially in london we've seen police officers uh, be- become overly involved uh, whether it's pride celebrations or black lives matter protests uh, and, and i think unfortunately that's left the police open to accusations that it, it, it doesn't um handle and manage protests of different ideological shades in a fair way, that there are discrepancies mm. when it comes to policing particular events. Uh, as you know, the Casey review into the into the Met was incredibly damning, Fraser, and I think that, to be honest, it just needs to focus on that. Mm. It needs to focus on uh, some very serious cultural issues within the organisation. Uh, I don't want to see much um, so-called woke posturing when there's very clearly problems, for example, in, in terms of mis- misogyny. With, with, within within the Met. So I, I think that Sir Mark Rowley, he's got his work cut out, to be honest. I think that the Met's been struck by scandal after scandal. I personally think it's um, too big to succeed. I, I, I've written in the past about how the Met, I think it, sh- it should be broken up into s- smaller police forces mm. or um, there should be certain outer boroughs in London being absorbed to existing into existing police forces, whether that might be Essex, Hertfordshire and other police forces. Um, because I, I ultimately think the size of it and the fact that it's jointly co-governed at the moment um, by a, a Tory Home Secretary in Swala Braverman and the London Mayor, yeah. um, Labour Sadiq Khan. I, I just think the entire model for the Metropolitan Police is dysfunctional. And I think that what, in, what we need to see actually is radical reform. Otherwise, I think that the standards of, 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 of the standards of policing in London are going to remain fairly low. Mm. And, and Emily, do you think anything will change from these comments? I mean, the Prime Minister has promised to deal with woke policing. Swala Braverman has promised to deal with woke policing. And Various police chiefs um, at different levels have all said, we've got to get a handle on this. And it's, it just feels as if nothing ever changes. I mean, I'm not convinced anything will really change with these comments. He's probably saying it because he can sense that the public mood is in that direction mm. and he's being pushed a bit in that way by what the government is saying, whether he means it and what that actually means in practice. What, I mean, what does it mean? Okay, so they're not going to take the knee or they're not going to police so many tweets yeah. or they're not going to, well, I'm not really sure that's going to make a difference. Um, I think as, as Rakib said, 
They need to do what they're supposed to do and do it well. Investigate every crime, which is what keeps coming up. You know, investigate the extraordinary thefts, investigate burglaries. That, yeah, the Home Secretary <laughs> made this week that the police will invest, will actually investigate crimes. Yeah, <laughs> might be nice. You know, how many times have people's cars been nicked or they've been burgled or, or you know, mugged and not even bothered to uh, tell the police about it because they have no faith. That's what I want the police to be saying. I think he's trying to get some you know, attention, I don't mm. know, by saying this, because it's what some people want to hear. Yeah. And, and Rakeem, finally, I mean, perhaps what we need is a change in the law, a sort of stripping away of many of these hate speech laws that allow the police to um, investigate tweets, perhaps some of the equality laws that make our institutions feel as if they have to embed, you know, diversity and equity into everything they do. Do, do you think that those kinds of changes might be necessary? I, I think there's definitely a discussion to be had in terms of the, 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 the policing overreach we've seen, especially when it comes to the policing of um, people's um, social media behaviour, much of which is, is perfectly legitimate. Uh, in t- and I think that the police, in its own way, it, it's represented a fundamental threat to freedom of expression mm. um, in this country in terms of the, the over-policing of people's social media accounts. I think another point that I'd make really, and it might be somewhat controversial, I see a lot of police officers on the beat and I just think, if you had to chase me, you'd run out of steam off. <laughs> you would run out of steam off. And I think that's a problem because I think police officers, they have to reach a certain level of fitness to be able to fulfil their duties. You think they're um, too in, fat in, to be police officers? In, in an effective way. And I think there's a there's a story about how the Mets having to order these trousers for these police officers are incredible waistline sizes. Um, <laughs> and I think that needs to be that. part of the debate, that we need to have... I, I, I think for me, firstly, I think neighbourhood policing in many areas, phrase has been gutted, yeah. um, if tribute on, and I think that's a serious problem. So I think if you want really healthy police community relations, you need that effective neighbourhood policing model. But I, I do think there's a serious problem in terms of recruitment and the yeah. general fitness of your average officer on the beat. So uh, in <laughs> truth, when it comes to law and order in this country, there's a lot for us to think about. <laughs> So a man who calls himself Kayla Lemieux, a teacher who wears giant size Z uh, prosthetic breasts, uh, is back teaching in school. He's got a new job in Ontario. The school principal has said how committed the school is to um, equality, uh, basically warned parents um, and protesters uh, against causing too much of a fuss. I mean, a lot of people have found this case uh, Faintly ridiculous. I mean, Rakeeb, looking at um, this gentleman, is this an appropriate? Uh, <laughs> is this an appropriate way for a teacher to dress? To oh, you? not at all, Fraser. Not not at all. If if, if I, my kids were going to that school, I'd be very worried if, they, if that was their teacher. To be honest, so I wouldn't want them in the same classroom. Um, if truth be told, and I think it's interesting. So, so he's in Ontario, isn't it? In Canada. Yeah. I yeah. think there's a very serious problem with radical transgenderism in Canada yeah. um, in particular. I'm not sure if you've seen a story that Canada's about to have the first transgender international cricketer, mm. which is essentially a man who emigrated from Australia to Canada. So I, I, I think what's absolutely remarkable, and I, I know that's a bit different because that's sport, but I, I think what we're seeing here, that this denial of biological reality 
um, in my view, not uh, incredibly disrespectful towards women's rights um, more generally, but it does pose a threat to women's sports as well. And I think in a way, this particular individual that you're referring to with their uh, oversized artificial bosom, (laughs) how disrespectful can you get towards women? That's all I can say, really. It's just, I think it's so thoroughly offensive. It's untrue. We should say that, um, in his defense, he claims that the breasts are natural and that he has oh. a rare condition called uh, gigantomastia that gives him excessively large I mean, breasts. He's just taking the mick there. But you're misgendering. Uh, yeah, so, so yeah, you know, yeah. this person, this person, yes, is actually thoroughly offensive. Um, having size Z prosthetic boobs, as I said earlier, does not a woman make Fraser. Mm. And it reminds me of Dylan Mulvaney, which is this ridiculous acting job, essentially, of what a woman is. That's the famous transgender Uh, TikToker. Yes, the TikToker who got a deal with Nike and Bud Light Mm. and then Bud Light's share price dropped dramatically because their sales did, because most people who drink Bud Light did not approve of someone so openly mocking women in that yeah. way, acting like a little girl. Um, but this is kind of similar. Yeah. But then perhaps this person is trying to mock the whole thing, see how far they can take it, yeah. see how far they can trick people and trick the progressives into believing um, that they are in fact, transgender and in fact, a woman. So it's all utterly bizarre. If I was a parent at that school, I would kick off but then what do you do hold a placard up saying i don't want my teacher to have fake boobs that are size z Mm. i mean then you sound like a bigot don't you i think yeah i think one of the strangest things is obviously you know there are always going to be some odd people in society (laughs) people are going to dress in strange ways people are going to express themselves in ways that we don't approve of that's fine but what really strikes me is the way that the school um and you know I guess the sort of woke more broadly will defend this to the hilt. We'll say that this person ha- has an absolute right to dress like this. They absolutely are a woman, and if you question that, you are a bigot. You are that. You are the problem. Yeah. What's wrong with you for thinking this is strange? Well, it's this the compelled speech, normal. isn't it? Yeah. Um, like uh, Jordan Peterson used to talk about when he uh, he came came with, well he had this problem at his uh, university to begin with. It's why he became so interested in this area. Mm. Um, he said, I don't want my speech to be compelled. You can say you're a woman, but that doesn't mean that I have to call you her. Yeah. Um, and that was seen as, you know, outrageous bigotry, uh, by some, uh, transgender activists or their allies. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, people don't have to accept things are true if they're not, but here we are. And, and Rakeem, finally, um, you sort of, uh, alluded to this earlier. It, it does seem like Canada is kind of the ground zero for a lot of this craziness, whether that's uh, trans or sort of wokeness in general. Um, it was interesting that the Canadian government has actually warned uh, LGBT Canadians from going to America because uh, it might be unsafe for them. This year, they actually extended Pride Month to Pride Season. Uh, <laughs> so they're still enjoying um, Pride over there in, in, in Canada. Um what you, Pride season. It's. It, I mean, it's exactly. It's so. It's June in the UK, but in Canada, it's June, August, and September because oh. it, and, and presumably it will get extended again next year because how could you have a non uh, Pride month? 
What do you think? There's something in the water there, Akeem. What's going on? <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't really know what to say about Canada because when I was growing up, I saw Canada as this sort of, sort of a flourishing, diverse democracy. I almost thought it was the, it, it was the model mm. of of a vibrant, successful, multiracial democracy. And in many ways, it's just gone to pot, whether it's the radical transgenderism. I think some of the policy making surrounding euthanasia yeah. has been so hyper liberalized. Um, I, I think it's I think it's deeply dangerous the, the way that this other policy making has been made around the, that particular issue. Uh, I, I think more generally, I think North America is a very serious problem when it uh, has a very serious problem when it comes to radical um, identity politics. I think Justin Trudeau's, I say leadership very loosely. <laughs> I, I, I think it's been a very huge problem, and he's another he's another leader who talks about. He's a bit similar to Sadiq Khan in the sense that he often criticizes the culture wars without realizing that he's one of the he, he's one of the central figures within those culture wars. Um, that's what I'd say, and I think that more generally, it's a real shame because I think I think Canada it had that kind of multicultural pro-integration framework which which i used to admire a great deal but i think whether it's sort of racial identity politics sort of radical transgenderism uh, as i talked about earlier those policies surrounding euthanasia i think they've got some very serious issues there and i want to see as uh, that politics in canada i really don't want to see much of that imported uh, into the uk Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.